so blessed to be part of this church. I love this church. Let's pray together. Father, I do. I love this church. <laughs> I can't think of any better way to say it. I just love being a part of this church. So many great people that you brought here, Lord. People that love you. People that love Jesus. Want to proclaim his name. Not just here on the island, but all over the world. I love this church. But I know that my love pales in comparison to your love. This is the bride of your son. How privileged are we to be called your people. How privileged. I thank you for that, God, that you would call us out of the darkness into your marvelous light and give us a purpose. Wow. Thank you, Lord God. I pray for each person in this room now that you would incline our hearts to be able to understand your word. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, we can't understand it. So help us, Lord. We're a needy people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good to see everybody this morning. The title for this morning's message is a single word, driven. And the big idea, or the main lesson, is equally as simple. God's people are to be a driven people. Pretty simple, right? Every person that you know, every person is driven by something. Whether it's success. Some people are driven by success. Some people are driven by the fear of failure. Some people are driven by money. Some people are driven by a fear of poverty. Some people are driven by love. Other people are driven by a fear of being unloved. Some people are driven by guilt. Some people are driven by freedom. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what country you live in, there is a spirit driving you. Some kind of a passion or an ambition that determines everything you do. From the small little mundane things like brushing your teeth to the big major decisions of your life like choosing a spouse. Everything you do is driven by something. You know, as, I, as I've explained in different messages um, over the past few months, and even in the email that I sent out this past week, I write a little devotional each week, and if you're not on that email list, see me afterwards. I'll put your name on that list, and you can get a part of that. In that email, I talked about the human heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that blood-pumping blood organ, but it's talking about the central part of the human soul where your desires are stored and kept. Don't miss that this morning, because that's going to be a major part of this message. The heart of the human being is the central part of the human soul where the desires are stored and kept. Everything you do, from those little mundane things to the major things that you do in your life, come out as a result of what is living inside of your heart. Do you understand that that's a major lesson that's taught all throughout the Scriptures? Jesus talked a lot about that when he was talking with the Pharisees. That all your actions, everything, even little insignificant things that you don't think mean anything, they're coming out of a belief system in your heart where your deepest desires and ambitions are stored the most true you. That's the heart. It's an important thing for us to consider. Uh, you know, this week I was thinking about kind of an interesting thing. Um, I saw an article written about a statistician, and I realized, you know, I don't think I've ever met a statistician before. These are people who make it their life's work to keep facts and make charts and graphs to measure things. What if, what if a statistician was to follow you around in your life? 
with the sole purpose of collecting data about you. Okay, so they followed and looked at how you spent your time, how you spent your resources, how you spent your money, where you went on your free time, what you watched on TV, and they just followed you around like this. Kind of creepy, right? But what if a statistician, you were to hire a personal one just to follow you around to collect data? What do you suppose the results might show about what your deepest desires are? Uh, Many of you know that uh, Ashley and I bought a new dog for our kids this Christmas. He's a Brittany Spaniel. He's very hyper right now. He's eight months old. His name is Cooper. And um, we love to study Cooper. We love to try to figure out what makes this dog tick. And so we've learned several things over the last seven months with Cooper. If you hang out at our house for a day, you'll hear this phrase, this particular phrase come out of my wife's mouth. You are such a food-driven dog. She'll say it over and over and over again. And it's true. Cooper is driven by food. There's no denying it. And if you were just to study his behavior throughout a day, you would learn that there's one particular thing that Cooper does that would really clue you in to what drives this dog. You see, if Cooper's willing to suffer something to get food, then you really know what he's, he desires most. So we've learned that when we get ready to leave the house, Cooper hates being left alone. So we've had to take like a little handful of his food and throw it into his crate so that he'll have some incentive to go in there. Well, now he's on to us. So when we pull a handful of food out, his ears drop, and he, and he sits there, and he stands, and it's almost like you could hear his thoughts. He deliberates. Do I really want to suffer being locked up in this cage for who knows how long for a handful of food? Hmm. So far, every one of those deliberations has ended in the same result. He wants the food. So he's willing to suffer something to get what he desires most. I wonder what would happen if each one of us studied our own lives like that. What are you willing to suffer in order to get what you desire most? Are you willing to suffer loss of money for something? Loss of resources? Loss of time? A loss of your reputation. Whatever a person desires most is clearly that what's, which is living in that person's heart. A couple of months ago, I preached a message where I talked about the word passion. You know where that word comes from? A Latin word, which literally means to suffer. Do you know that? It makes sense. That's why we call this, 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 uh, this cross, but also what Jesus did here, the passion of the Christ. He was so passionate about the lost that he was willing to suffer the de- a gruesome death. That's why we call it that, the passion of the Christ. Whatever your deepest desire is, is your passion. Whatever you're willing to suffer for is your passion. Very simple, easy to remember. This morning we come to chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. You can turn there now if you haven't already. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And today we come to a, a portion where we're going to learn about what Abraham's drive was. And as you learn about it, I want to I encourage you to do something. As we read through this text, and as I, I discuss with you what it, clearly what his passion was, I hope you'll turn introspective. I hope you'll ask the Lord, and be honest before the Lord, and say, Lord, I don't want to lie to myself anymore. I just want the truth. No one's going to know this but you and the Lord anyway. Ask him right now in the quietness of your heart, Lord, show me. Show me what the true drive of my heart is. Show me what's lurking in there in places where I can't even see. Show me, Lord. 
I think he will if you'll ask that. That's a risky, gutsy kind of a prayer. Are you willing to do it? Ask the Lord to show you what your deepest passion is today as we read through. <clears throat> Let's read it together. Genesis 18, 1 through 8. And as you're turning there, we have it up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. You know something? These first eight verses, as I read through it, you're probably going to go, hmm, there doesn't seem to be much there, actually. Don't read it yet. I see all your eyes going like this, which tells me it's probably up there. If you read through this the first time, you might do what I did the first few times I read it this week, which was I read it and I thought, this is just context. It's going to give me what I need to understand what's going to come next, because chapter 18 is full of all kinds of major things here. And then I couldn't get past it. Something kept drawing me back to these first eight verses. I wrote a whole other outline, was prepared to preach a different sermon. But the Lord said, something different. Got to go back to those first eight verses. I'm so glad he did. I think you will be too. Let's read it together. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seeds of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf, that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by, stood by them under the tree while they ate. Right from the get-go, I want to point something out very clear here so that you don't miss it. A couple of weeks ago, if you remember, I introduced the church to a new word, new for some of you, maybe others have known it. It's the word theophany. Back when Abraham, excuse me, when Hagar was wandering out in the wilderness, she had an appearance. She met with the angel of the Lord. And that's what's known as a theophany. What that is, is an Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so, that happened in Genesis chapter 16, and now it's happening again. Here's how we know that. A little bit later on, as you'll see in this chapter, Abraham refers to one of these people as the Lord himself, worships him as God. The other two, we're going to find out in chapter 19, those other two have an assignment, and they are referred to as angels in the very next chapter. So we know these three strangers, one of them is the Lord, and the other two are angels. You'll hear that if you stick around and wait until Genesis chapter 19. So a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that you know that. But looking closely at this passage, you're going to see, as I think I, as, as I did this week, three specific things that clue us into, into what Abraham's drive was, what his passion, his deepest ambition. Let's look at the first one together. The first one, point number one for today, being in the presence of the Lord drove Abraham. The presence of the Lord. Look back at the first three verses. I think you'll see it clearly here. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, I want you to be crystal clear about what, what's happening here in this scene. 
picture it with me, okay? There's a man sitting here who's almost 100 years old. 100 years old. When the Bible talks about the heat of the day, anytime you see that phrase anywhere in the whole Bible, you know what it means? The hottest part of the afternoon. So roughly between 1 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon here, this is when the hottest part of the day would be. So here's this old man, 100 years old. It says he's sitting by the door to his tent. Who knows? Maybe he's sitting down in the dirt. Maybe they had chairs back then. I don't think so. Maybe they did. But he's sitting nonetheless. It says he has his head down. So you imagine sweat is beating up on him, the heat of the day. This place where he's at, called the Oaks of Mamre, this is actually a tourist attraction now over in a city called Hebron. And Hebron is about um, 18 miles from Jerusalem. It's a city located in the West Bank. And in Hebron, temperatures can reach about 128 degrees. So you imagine, okay, are you getting the picture? This old man, 100 years old, he's probably also a little discouraged. Do you know why? He's been waiting for 25 years on these promises that God has made to him and hasn't seen any of them yet. So put yourself in his place for a minute. He's sitting there, head down. It's hot. I'm 100 years old. What in the world would get you to stand up and run? Did you catch it in this passage? He's running all over the place. The first thing in here, it says that these men showed up and he says, Oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. What would get this man up? I want to tell you, I think it's very clear. The presence of the Lord got this man to do things he wouldn't normally do. Hear it again. It's as if he's saying, Oh Lord, no matter what you do, please, 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 just don't pass by me. I just want to spend a little bit of time. Wherever you're headed, I don't know, but please don't pass by me. Just spend a little time with me. This got this old man up. The presence of the Lord was so precious to him that it drove him to get up in the middle of the day. It was more important, hear me, more important than his comfort. It was more important than his agenda for the day, whatever it may have been. It was more important than his rest. It's hot outside. He's an old man. All those things were completely behind him, not even a thought in his mind. The moment he saw the Lord, because the presence of God was that valuable to this man. It drove him. It was his deepest ambition. You know why? Abraham discovered, and you'll see this more and more as we study his life, he discovered that a life that will make a significant impact, any life that's going to make a significant impact, you have to have regular presence of the Lord. If you don't, forget about it. Your life isn't going to matter, at least in the eyes of God, if you're not spending time with the Lord. Now, I want you to consider something here with me. Abraham had a major switch happen in his life. He went from being a man whose whole life was about making his own um, glory known, making his own value known, to a man who had this complete flip-flop. He now lives a life that is dedicated to making God's glory known. Abraham has before him probably one of the greatest challenges that any person has ever had. Imagine the plate that Abraham had in front of him. God has asked him to go out in the wilderness and trust that he's going to make a great nation out of him. He's promised him a son, and now he's old. He's got a tremendous challenge in front of him. And I wonder, what is it that would make somebody rise to that kind of a challenge? If you were here last week, you might have had a chance to talk to my closest friend, John Fazio. John has always been an incredibly driven person. 
the 25 years that I've known him, John has been the epitome of an overachiever. Always driving to do things that were um, just kind of just outside of his reach. And I admired that about John. But John had one of these switch moments in his life too. John is an attorney. In, in, uh, he lives in Hoboken. He has two offices, one in Manhattan and one in Mawa, New Jersey. 2005, John came to Christ. Before 2005, you could watch his life and say, this is a guy who's clearly living for himself. He's got this drive. He's got this ambition. It's clearly all about him. 2005, something changed in John. Not overnight, but little by little, my wife and I have watched as this man, his goals stayed the same, but his ambition changed. It changed from being all about the glory of John to all about the glory of God. John is about to do something that is extremely difficult. And after church on last Sunday, I sat up there on the balcony with him and I talked to him for about an hour and a half about what would drive someone to do something like this. John is about to run one of the hardest foot races on planet Earth. It's called the Leadville 100. And it's a 100-mile foot race in the mountains of Colorado. You have 30 hours to complete this. I want to read, I asked John, what would, what would drive you to do something like that? And he explained it to me and I said, John... I want you to write that down. I want you to email it to me. So he did. Can I read you a little bit about what's driving John to do this? I think you'll find it fascinating. Now, he wrote me this one-page thing, but I'm just going to read you a small portion. He says this. I plan to run the Leadville 100-foot race this summer. It's a 100-mile race that includes over 15,000 feet of climbing through several peaks in the Rocky Mountains. The entire race takes place over 10,000 feet in altitude in a section of the Rockies where there's a third less oxygen than at sea level. Sounds like he's nuts. Each year, less than 40% of the people who start the race, most of them extreme athletes and Olympians, ever even managed to cross the finish line. I'm not an extreme athlete or a particularly gifted runner. I'm a lawyer that lives a sedentary lifestyle and usually tends toward the portly side of the spectrum. So why am I doing this? Well, John lists six things here, but I just want to read you the last one. I think you'll find it a direct parallel to what we're reading here. Listen to what he says. Taking on a a big challenge brings me in touch with God and helps me to hear His voice. God did not put me on this earth to subsist or to get by or to retire serenely to a life of comfort, but He put me here to make an impact. And when you're on the path of a big challenge, providence moves too and provides you with guidance and insight and all forms of material aid that one never encounters in the ordinary sphere of life. Do you hear what John learned? John has recognized that unless he hears regularly from God, he will never be able to make an impact on anything. John has a very full plate, a lot of people that rely on him and look up to him. He knows that if he doesn't go off into the mountains where he can be in a place where he's going to hear clearly from God, pushing himself to a point where he knows, I can't do this on my own. And then watch as God carries him through something that most people would consider to be impossible. He'll never be able to survive those big challenges that are on his plate on a daily basis. Friends, listen to me. Listen very carefully. Please don't miss this. Have you ever been around somebody who you know has spent a significant time in the presence of God? 
You ever been around a woman or a man like that? When you get around someone like that, it's almost like, it's almost like the aroma of God is still on them. You cannot spend a significant time with someone who's spent a significant time alone with God and not be changed. You can't. If you want to leave a big impact on your life, spend a significant amount of time in the presence of the Lord. You know why? Because everybody who comes into contact with you will feel the presence of God when they're around you. That's what John knows when he goes off into the mountains, which doesn't make sense to most people. When he comes back, I sense something's different about John. It's because the scriptures come alive to him when he's up there. If you want your life to mean something in the end, you may be sitting here going, Pastor, I'm not so sure that in the end my life is going to be worth very much. I'm not so sure that it's going to count for very much. I want to tell you, I want to answer that with a question. What is your greatest desire? What is your greatest desire? If your desire is to accumulate stuff, you're right. When you're done at the end of this life, it's not going to count for very much. But if your desire is like what Abraham's was, to just sit in the presence of God Almighty, I can tell you, your life is going to count in the end. Because every person that comes into contact with you will be coming into contact with someone who has sat with him. How much time are you spending in the Word each day? Is it just a little time in the morning to say, got that done? How much time are you spending in prayer each day? I mean, meaningful prayer. Guys like A.W. Tozer, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. Do you know what made these men so great? It's that their knees were swollen because of how much time they spent on their, their knees in prayer. That's what made these men so great. They weren't any different than you and I. They weren't better saints. But they spent time in the presence of God. Are you? Are you? If you're going to tell me this morning, Lord, or Luke, I just don't feel... Like I'm very close to God. Well, I want to ask you, how much time are you spending alone with Him in silence, locking yourself in a closet with nothing but your Bible, and you refuse to come out until you hear from Him? Do you ever do that? How much time have you spent just getting away? Just you. Lord, I need to hear from you. I'm going to go away. I'm going to fast because you're more important to me than food. I want you, Lord. I want your presence. Don't be surprised if you only have a glimpse of the Lord. You know something? <clears throat> Jeremiah said something that I think was really appropriate to you and I. I'll read it real quick. Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13. He says this, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All the place where that desi desires are kept, if you seek me with all that, meaning your greatest desire should be for me, if that's you, you will find me. Friends, Christian, I want to tell you, if you're only getting a half-hearted relationship with God, it's probably because you have a half-hearted approach to Him. Seek Him with all your heart and He promises you'll find Him. The second thing for today is this. Serving the Lord drove Abraham. Service to the Lord. Look back at verses 4 through 7. I think you'll see it clearly. He says this. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds, that's measures, three seeds or measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, not just any old calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Notice Abraham asked the Lord's permission before he does any of these things. Did you catch that? He waited for the Lord to tell him, yes, that's a good desire, go ahead and do that. The Lord said to him, do as you have, he said, do as you have said. In other words, what he's saying is, go ahead and do what's in your heart, Abraham. Because remember, the Lord sees what's in the heart. He knows what are good motives and what are impure motives. So the Lord's looking in on his heart and he sees this man has a desire to serve. Go ahead, do as you have said. Now, why do you suppose God would tell a hundred-year-old man who's sweaty and and hot and tired and probably a little discouraged, why would God tell him, yeah, that's a good thing for you to do. Go ahead and serve us. Why would God say that? If you saw an old man come up to you and he says, and he's, maybe he's limping. Remember, this guy's been walking around in the desert for a long time. Maybe he's limping. I want to serve. You and I, in our human understanding, might say, it might not be such a good idea. Why don't you just have a seat and pray and let some other people serve? But not here. The Lord says, yes, it's a good idea. Go ahead and run and do it. Why would he say that? I think it's very obvious. Because God knows what is best for every one of his children, right? And God knows what Abraham needs in this moment is not necessarily rest or comfort, but to serve. God knows what is best. Best. He knows what will allow Abraham to go to sleep at night and feel full at the end of the day. Oh, tomorrow there'll be a day of rest. Today, oh, today I feel full because I got to serve the Lord. God knows what is best. We read a psalm at the beginning today, and I want to clue you back into a portion of that psalm. Psalm 84. Abraham is living this out. Psalm 84, verse 10 said this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Even if I'm hot, even if I'm sweaty, even if I'm irritated and underpaid and undervalued, underappreciated, I would rather be a servant because I know that at the end of the day, all those other pursuits that I could devote my time to, all those other pursuits still leave me feeling hungry at the end of the day. But the pursuit of the Lord, serving the Lord, that's the only thing that has left me feeling full when I lay my head down on the pillow at night. This is what Abraham knew. Friends, I want you to hear me. A man in our church approached me this week. And like, like the average age of the people in this church, a person in the latter half of his life, retirement years, he came up to me and he said, Luke, I want to serve. And he said, I don't care what it is. I want to clean toilets or whatever else you have for me to do. I want to serve. And I said to him, I'll, I'll see if I can find something that would be, be right for you. And he goes, no, 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 that's not good enough. I want to serve. You tell me what to do. I want to do it. What do you suppose would drive a man to say something like that in the latter half of his life? 
Isn't it obvious? This particular person has figured something out that the majority of the church won't even, they won't even dip their toe in that pool. They, he's figured out that when he goes to bed at night, he goes to bed feeling full if he devotes his time to serving the Lord instead of being out on the boat or lounging on the beach or going golfing, all of which are great things, but they left him feeling full at night, I imagine. But serving the Lord leaves this particular man satisfied, gratified, like nothing else could. This guy gets it just like Abraham got it. That's why God would probably say to him, that's good for you to do. Even in the latter half of your life, that's good for you to do. Let me ask you a a tough question. What advice, if you were there with Abraham, picture it now, you're sitting there with Abraham, he's sitting by his tent, he's hot, he's sweaty, You're sitting there with him. What advice would you give Abraham if he said this? Oh, please don't miss this. If he said, I've given enough. When that guy Melchizedek came into town, the priest, I gave him my tithe. I gave him the tenth that the Lord asked for. I gave enough to the church. I'm going to keep that stuff which I've accumulated, the finer things, that calf over there that's looking really good. I deserve it. I'm walking around the desert. I'm faithful to the Lord. The good stuff I can keep for myself. What would you say to Abraham? I hope you'd whisper in his ear and say, Abraham, you're a fool. You're a fool, Abraham, because you cannot outgive the Lord. Abraham, let me tell you a little little piece of advice that I heard a wise man say once. A wise man once said, if anyone, Abraham would seek to save his life, meaning preserve all of those things for himself which he thinks are the best things to accumulate for himself. If anyone would seek to do that, that's the one who will lose his life. But if anyone would completely give up his life, saying, everything is yours, Lord. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the middle stuff, it's all yours. Take it. Anyone who does that will find his life. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses himself, Abraham? What do you really gain, brother, by keeping the finest things for yourself? I hope that you would give that advice to Abraham. You know who said those words, right? Jesus said that. Jesus said that. I hope if you were sitting with Abraham, that's the advice that you'd give him. Your greatest joy, Christian. Your greatest joy in life. That's what we're all seeking for, right? Joy in life. It may just be that you've yet to discover it because of one thing. This. You've got such a tight grip on all the things that you think will make you happy, and they just won't. The more you start to loosen up that grip and let go of your life, well, I'll give the Lord that, but not that. That one I'm keeping for myself because I've earned that. Those things you know, those of you who have lived long enough, they own you. They end up becoming master over you. This is why Abraham, it's so clear what his drive was. His drive was the Lord because he he was willing to give the greatest of what he had. Last thing for today. Pleasing the Lord drove Abraham. The final verse. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. While he stood by them under the tree, and he stood by them under the tree, while they ate. 
Since coming to IBC, you might have heard me repeat a phrase two or three times. You'll probably hear me repeat it a few more times. Here it is. The closer you draw to God, the less you ask what is permissible, what can I get away with and still be a good Christian, and the more you ask what pleases him. The closer I draw the God to God, the less I ask, can I do that and still be called a good Christian? People who are drawing close to God, they don't ask those kinds of questions. They ask, Lord, I don't care about this stuff in my life. Whatever pleases you, that's what I want. Did you notice what it said there in the very, very, very last verse? It said, he stood by the tree and watched as they ate. Why would anybody do that? He's old, he's tired, I know he's hungry, he's been running around all afternoon. Here's why he would do that. Because Abraham has discovered an essential truth to following the Lord. You know what he discovered? He discovered that if you spend all those things that are most valuable to you on yourself, it's not as tasty as if you give it to somebody who you love. In Asian cultures, you'll still see today, servants will stand by like this as the master eats. It's a sign of respect, reverence. This is exactly what Abraham was doing, standing under a tree, watching, watching because it gave him more pleasure to sit and watch as his master ate than it would be for him to sit and eat himself. Do you get it? His master's pleasure had become so valuable to him I hope you're here in this morning, church. Is this how you think? Is your life devoted to using the resources that God has given you on yourself? What would you tell your children on Christmas morning? I bet you if I asked each of you to tell me about a really good Christmas day that you've had over your life, I bet you, if you're like me, I sat thinking about it this week, all the most memorable Christmases are when I gave something that I was so excited to give somebody and I watched them tear it open, right? That's where that old phrase comes from. It's better to give than to receive. Of course, you know this in your heart of hearts. Yet, I wonder if you were to add up all of your resources and how much of it is being spent on you, who does it say that you love the most? If you were to take a look at your bank account and discover what is it that the bottom line shows that all of my expenditures prove who it is that I love the most. Most often, I bet most of us would figure out, my goodness, I'm spending an enormous amount on one particular person. In Abraham's case, the very best of it, he knew spending it on the Lord brought him greater pleasure. So like Abraham, you and I who have been rescued out of the darkness and made children of light, now that that's our identity, what is it that we're supposed to do? The Apostle Paul wrote two things. I want you to pay very close attention to what his ambition was in life. What is it that's supposed to drive a Christian? Listen carefully to what Paul says. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now listen to this. And try. Stop right there. That word try is another word for make it your ambition, make it your drive, make this your ultimate passion in life, okay? And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that is your ultimate drive. Forget about what pleases me, Lord. I only want what pleases you because I know that if I please you, it will be what satisfies me the most. He went on to say something else. The Apostle Paul lived the life of godly ambition. 
No one would deny that. This was a man of drive. And listen to what he says. And thus, excuse me, this is Romans 15, 20 through 21. And thus I make it my ambition, my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Church, what drove the Apostle Paul was the very same thing that drove the Lord Jesus Christ. The very same passion. The Apostle Paul had a passion that could be illustrated like this. He wanted his life to be one giant newspaper. A newspaper with big, bold print so that no matter which page of Paul's life you open to, you would see the exact same message in big, giant newspaper red letters. Those red letters would say, Jesus Christ has defeated death. Every single page of Paul's newspaper life would read that. Why that? Because what pleases the Lord most is when lost people are found. When dead people are raised back to life. And so Paul decided, my ambition in life, my ultimate goal, is to make his pleasure my pleasure. His goals my goals. And if they're not aligned, I've learned through experience. My life is not going to feel very satisfactory. If that's you here this morning, if you're saying, Pastor, I've been living for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and it just seems very unsatisfying. I just don't feel very gratified with the way that I've been living my life, storing up for myself treasures that are just going to rust when I die. It's probably because got your eyes set on the wrong treasure. Take advice from Paul. His whole ambition was helping people understand and get to know the God who raised people from the dead. Is that yours? Is that yours? Let's go back to the statistician as we draw this in for a close. If the statistician was to follow you around throughout this summer, it's July 24th today. We've been marching our way through the summer. Summer is usually a time when Americans get rejuvenated. We go on vacations to refresh ourselves, get ready for the next year, school year. So if you've been going through this summer, if the statistician had been following you around, what do you suppose would be the findings at the end of the summer about where you found your peace? Where you found your satisfaction? I want to encourage some of you. Since coming to this church, I have been blown away by how many summer attenders come and volunteer their time on their summer vacation. I've been blown away by how many summer attenders give to this church year-round. I told another pastor that, and he didn't believe me. This shows me that some of the people in this church understand what Abraham understood. They understand that giving up their time, their energy, their resources... Worshiping the Lord and everything they do, that's where lasting joy is found. I wonder, how many of you are still resistant to that? Maybe today might be the day for you, Christian. And if you're here this morning saying, you know what, Pastor, I'm kind of new to this whole Bible thing. I really don't even know the Lord like you do. I really haven't even given my life to to the Lord. I want to encourage you. There is no day like today. You may not have it tomorrow. If you've yet to make the ultimate surrender to God, 
Guess what? In the end, your life is going to be filled with nothing but meaningless things. This is what Solomon found at the end of his life. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I want to tell you today, look at me. Surrender your life to Jesus. Start living a life that in the end will be shown to be worthwhile. Shown that your ultimate drive was what pleased the Lord. Friends, I want to close this in prayer, and I hope, I hope that you will be honest before the Lord. Let your heart be naked before Him. Show Him, Lord, if there's anything in here that proves that my drive is something other than you, you've got to fix it. Cut me to the heart, Lord. Let's pray. Close your eyes, bow your head, let's pray to Him, just like Abraham did. He bowed his head to the earth, it says. Lord, we all bow our heads before you because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you are coming again soon. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get our hearts right before you. Help us, Lord, to to become a people whose drive is clearly the Lord. Help us to have an ambition that if we were to measure it all up at the end of the day, everyone around us would say, now there's a person who is hungry for the same things God is hungry for. Thank you for the example of Abraham who stood by and watched the Lord eat who ran in the heat of the day. It's so clear what drove him. Help us, Lord, now as we continue to worship. Speak to us through the songs that we're going to hear. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.